0: Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Krishna Yeshwant. Krishna is a general partner with GV, the corporate venture firm formerly known as Google Ventures. He is something of a rare bird, a Stanford computer scientist and a Harvard physician. With this combination of professional interests and with the resources of Google to invest in fledgling companies, Krishna has acquired an unusual vantage point on where things are going and where they could go in biotech and healthcare. GV, like most corporate venture firms, doesn't promote itself as much as traditional venture firms that need to hit up limited partners for new cash every three to five years. Krishna doesn't talk to the media a whole lot. I enjoy talking with him on a semi-regular basis and do appreciate this extended look into his thinking on the podcast. He has his hands in a huge number of pies in biopharma, in genomic diagnostics, and in biology and healthcare related software. Krishna also recently turned 40, a traditional time to take stock on one's work. And here's one safe bet, he will be around a long time keeping his finger on the pulse of biology and computing. Now, before we dive in, a word from our sponsor. Yeah, you heard that right. Long-time listeners and subscribers to Timmerman Report know I spend all day reporting, thinking, writing, and speaking about biotech. It's what I do. Focusing like this is both good and bad. It doesn't leave me a whole lot of time for classical business tasks like, you know, sales and marketing of my own sole proprietorship. I've been a little stressed at seeing this show continue to gain momentum with listeners the past six months while losing money and propping it up out of my own pocket. But now I've got some help. The long run has a new marquee sponsor, PPD Biotech. That's right. Today's sponsor is PPD Biotech. As your drug development advances, it's critical to select the right CRO partner for your innovative therapy. With a full set of development services and global reach, PPD Biotech offers teams that are dedicated to biotech and small pharma. PPD Biotech knows that every milestone, every project update, every change in direction is important. Committed to close alignment and cultural fit, PPD Biotech works as an extension of your team every step of the way to find innovative solutions that get your treatments to the clinic faster learn more about PPD Biotech or to schedule a meeting with us with to learn more about PPD Biotech or to schedule a meeting with them at the upcoming JP Morgan conference, visit www.ppdbiotech.com/longrun. I'll repeat that www.ppdbiotech.com/longrun. Thank you. And with that, I hope you'll enjoy our conversation with Krishna Yeshwant. With me today on the long run is Krishna Yeshwant. He's a partner with GV, formerly known as Google Ventures. Do do we still say that Krishna or have people figured out the name change after a year or so?
1: You know, I think it still shows up as GV parentheses, formerly known as Google Ventures. <laughs> you kind okay. of get, sometimes you get kind of a double hit. Uh, it's both GV and Google Ventures, but we are officially GV.
0: Well, you are the corporate venture capital arm of Alphabet, uh, formerly known as Google, um, the, the family of companies. So, And you're a very active biotech investor, so real pleasure to have you here on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, Krishna, I think you're the first guest I've had on this show who actually interviewed me first. <laughs> I met you last year. You you had me uh, speak at Google Cambridge about my hood book for the most part. That's right. And uh, shameless plug here: you are an avid Timmerman Report subscriber. Thank you very yep. much. Although I really don't know when you find time to read my stuff.
1: <laughs> uh, it's it's one of it's one of the things I try and uh, look at every uh, every morning if I can, and and usually it's it's every so. Few days that that, uh, that that there's something there but uh, but yeah I always I always find that your analysis and, and summarizations and in, insights are, are, are really
0: valuable. well okay now that we got that out of the way thank you <laughs> <laughs> as a physician and a businessman and a biotech venture capitalist before we get into like your whole career arc just real quick I want to ask you like what are some of your three or four say most important go-to publications that you read? That are kind of essential parts of your information diet. It's
1: interesting. I mean, nowadays there's so many um, kind of digests. Uh, you know, so uh, so every every morning I'll get some Axios array of things. I'll get the endpoints uh, thing. Uh, you know, Timmerman report. Uh, these are all things that I I, I usually see every morning. Um, term sheet shows up there. So so all that stuff is kind of like a, you know, uh, I'm I'm definitely going to start the day with that. Uh, you know, there's, there's a variety of things on the clinical side that are similar, uh, uh, digests of, of interesting guidelines that are changing and, and interesting papers that are coming out, so you should try and keep track of uh, a lot of that stuff. We have our own internal digest, at GV that I, that I keep track of, so I feel like the first part of my morning is usually just getting through a whole bunch of uh, you know, stuff that's happened. Um, and then I, I will go to Hacker News frequently, uh, which is its own sort of digest and and keeps me at least somewhat connected to the tech world. Uh, And what I love about that site is that there's a lot of programmers and and people who build things uh, on the site. Uh, And that that, that usually helps me keep uh, a good pulse of of what's going on in the tech universe. Um, I check out New England Journal, Nature on the regular cycles, Science and Cell as those, those come out. Uh, health affairs, uh, I think, are but but if I were to go to the top three things that I actually really <laughs> see every morning, it's 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 it's, it's that set of digests that, uh, that that usually show up in my inbox.
0: I ask you that partly because it's a reflection of who you are and what you do. Investing at that intersection of biology and technology, you, you need to gather information from a wide variety of sources. Um, and we'll get into some of what you specifically do. but um, okay, now let's just take this from the start. Uh, where Where did you come from? Where were you born and raised? I grew up
1: just outside of Chicago. So um, one of the suburbs in the northwest corner of the Chicago area. Um, and uh, I have, um, yeah, my parents are still out there. Uh, it's a place called Barrington uh, and uh, uh, it's it's kind of the quiet. Suburbs of Chicago, and and uh, it was always very exciting for us to go into the big city. That, that's where I grew up. Uh
0: huh. What did your uh, parents do for a living?
1: Both my parents are doctors. Um, everybody in my family is a doctor. My brother's a doctor. My parents are doctors. Aunts and uncles, everybody's a physician. And um, uh, my dad's an oncologist specifically, and my mom uh, is a primary care doctor. And she, uh, in addition to running her primary care practice. Got into geriatrics, and then additionally, essentially, took over uh, running my dad's practice for a while, uh, and has since stepped back from that. But, uh, but I, I think it was really watching both of them uh, in community practice, uh, and, and kind of seeing the uh, the entrepreneurship that was part of that. You know, it's not just uh, clinical medicine; uh, you are also hiring a whole bunch of people and trying to keep a whole bunch of partners all aligned in 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 some direction for where the where the where the Clinic needs to grow. Uh, there's always hospital relationships, interactions with uh with other specialists. You know, during Christmas and Thanksgiving, uh, you know, a large portion uh, of my time uh was was um uh was really organized around uh you know making gifts for, <laughs> for other physicians. You know, we'd wrap up all these uh, you know, uh these nuts that my parents would have us uh, then deliver to 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 physicians who were referring patients to them and back and forth. And it was just it was just kind of this interesting thing where uh, as a kid at least we got to see some of the inner workings of how their business worked.
0: Wow, so you got to hear about things like hospital politics, referral oh, yeah. patterns, Medicare oh, yeah. reimbursement ever since you were, you know, like knee high to a grasshopper.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah, very much uh very much so and and it's still for better or worse still kind of the topic of conversation in my household. You know, when when <laughs> when we go when we go back for Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever, uh that is what we talk about. It's it's almost my wife's also a physician. Um, but you know, the second we start going down, you know, this EMR versus that EMR, or you know, you know how how CMS is looking at something, uh, most of the rest of my family starts to check out. Even the physicians start to check out. But my parents, you know, they ran this small practice. They started came from India uh, in the seventies, started this practice like so many other people. You know, started it really with nothing and. Um, I think there's a part of a part of it, which is just PTSD from having gone through all of that, that just, you know, they're at an age where they really should just retire. uh, And, you know, it's part of their identity.
0: Okay. So medicine runs in the family. Uh, Do you have siblings?
1: I have a younger brother who's an
0: electrophysiologist
1: who just moved to Chicago uh, to work at the VA.
0: Okay. Okay. And how old are you, by the way? I'm 40. Okay. The milestone year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I'll ask you later what you're going to do to celebrate. But <laughs> um, you <laughs> already done. You My actually... wife threw me a phenomenal, phenomenal
1: surprise party.
0: Okay, so everybody in the family is into medicine. You end up uh, studying computers at Stanford. That was your first stop as an undergrad, right? Yeah, and if
1: if you if you're if we're going you know step by step. Uh, you know there was uh, a, a step before uh, undergrad, so I went to this. Uh, I went to Barrington High School for my freshman year, and then in Illinois, just in, or in the Chicagoland area, there's a school called the Illinois Math and Science Academy, uh, IMSA, and it's based in Aurora, Illinois, and it's a residential school. It's a public high school, so it's funded through the same funds that the University of Illinois system is funded through, uh, and it's a magnet school uh, where which is made up of half. Half of the students, 200 students per class, start sophomore year, uh, and half the class is made up of um, people who get in on merit and half of the class is made to be representative of the state of Illinois. And, um, and so I, I basically moved there my sophomore year. How did you get in? Uh, I applied, you know, and took the SATs in seventh grade, basically, and you, know, you apply as an eighth grader or ninth grader, I think. So I took them in seventh and eighth grade and then, and then my freshman year. I applied and, and got in. They don't tell you which one. <laughs> I can't tell if I was uh, the, the representative of the of, of the state or. or okay. But, you know, but I, I, you know, obviously I've worked really hard, had good grades, and and um, uh, and and got into this school.
0: So were you being a little bit of a, a teenage rebel at this point? Like uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go into math and science, not necessarily <laughs> go go into medicine.
1: Uh, at that point, IMSA still has a lot of people who are really interested in biology and pre-med and all that stuff. Um, so. But, but really, it was where I started to, to, to veer away from the medical path. Um, you know, I, I got connected very quickly with a whole tremendous Unix computer system that they had installed throughout the university. And, and we had T1 lines running into the dorm rooms, and, and my, my roommates and, and dorm mates were all deep into computer science. Uh, and so I just got super deep into that world. Uh, you know, it was a place where, you know, there was a graphics arts, uh, you know, sort of, uh, computer lab that, that, that they basically let us set up as students. And we must've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, buying scanners and computers that, uh, that, you know, a bunch of people ended up using, but it was just this amazing place where, where you could really be involved in the guts of making the environment, what you wanted it to be. And, um, It really had two effects uh, on me. One is I got much deeper into computer science and and got very excited about what computers could do. I had been going into it, but it just took it to a whole other level. And I I think it's really where, um, you know, my interest in entrepreneurship uh, started to develop into something that felt um, like it could be something different than starting my own doctor's office, (laughs) which is kind of where I was uh, with my parents. And then, you know, I was just surrounded by people who a a lot of them went off and started great technology companies.
0: So if you're if you're just turning 40, you're a little bit younger than me. This means you would have graduated high school right around say 96, so is that right? It. Yeah, you got it. So, it's okay. Netscape. Happen. So, this is when yeah. the the internet is just like you said T1 lines, but you're just yeah. beginning to go online. Uh, so this you, you is pretty it. exciting time. You can get information now. Um, you know, hearing you describe this environment in high school, <laughs> the first thing that it makes me think of is, you know, the famous old stories about Bill Gates and Paul Allen when they were schoolmates yeah. together. Their school way back when didn't have those kind of resources that you describe, but the University of Washington down the street did. And so they like snuck in and catch some computer time and indulge their curiosity and and hone their skills. It it sounds a little bit like, you know, you and your, your buddies were, were had access to this kind of.
1: And I think the nature of kids uh, is to kind of just push whatever you have in front of you to whatever the logical extreme was. So I remember, for instance, we all had to do like these history presentations. Actually one of my friends had to do a presentation for gym class (laughs) <laughs> and so, you know, we all wanted to do presentations. Like, you know, we didn't want to just go up and do a chalk talk. We wanted to like make a presentation. But none of us I don't think PowerPoint was a thing then. I don't think it existed. We but we all figured out that there was this thing called director and we all figured out how to hack it and use it and and we made kind of this version of PowerPoint that that, that we each spent just weeks on. Uh you know, we'd we'd bring our computers to each other's houses and like, you know, program, you know, these these Presentations and, and different, you know, sorts of, uh, you know, visualizations of, of, of uh, you know, of whatever it was that we could convince ourselves it was worth the time to do, and and so yeah, it was it was kind of like that where, uh, you know, we wanted the computers to do something. It wasn't clear how to get them to do it, and then we just had infinite time. Uh, and we just used that time to try and hack the computers to do the thing that we thought they should be able to do.
0: Did you have a particular teacher or mentor, somebody who, who said, you know, you ought to push yourself and, uh, and aim high? You know, a little bit like, you have yeah. read my hood book, so you know he had a yeah. teacher like that in high school. Yeah. Many people do.
1: Yeah, I, I thought of one person when I read that part of the book. Uh, for me, it was somebody named Dr. Victory, uh, Jim Victory, who is a history teacher at, um, at IMSA. And, you know, the first, I was, you know, honestly, just to say it, like, you know, I, I, I'd been very, um, I think, uh, you know, ambitious and, and I, you know, I'd done very well in all my classes, you know, uh, going into IMSA. And, um, you know, he was probably the first person where I, he called me into his office. It was within the first three weeks of, of starting school. And he's like, you could do better than this. And I was like, kind of done, honestly. Um, and uh, you know, he, he really interestingly pushed us into using data in, in understanding the context of uh, the times that we were looking at and studying. He introduced us to all these different resources that I'd never really considered part of history. You know, it was all the census reports and all these other sort of, you know, agricultural data reports that you could just get access to. And, and then we started entering it all into, into Excel and, and analyzing it and trying to see, well, what implication would that have for how people might have been feeling about things then? And he just totally transformed my perspective from, you know, I, I need to read something and then kind of regurgitate it to I need to read it and really synthesize it and what that means uh, is is a creative process actually um, where you can really push yourself uh, and it just made a number of things infinitely more exciting to me.
0: Okay so so this is your this is a formative experience it sounds like. Then you go off to Stanford um, study computer science. Uh, what do mom and dad think of this?
1: You know um, I think they initially were just probably just confused and somewhat unaware uh, of what I was doing.
0: Why aren't you going into medicine?
1: Yeah, I think they probably thought, you know, my parents are not really what people think of. I think when they think of Indian parents who are doctors, like they didn't really push me to go into anything. Um, I don't think they particularly cared whether I was going to be a doctor or not. I think, you know, they they, they lived medicine and met in, in as a small practice uh, long enough to know that you know, this is not a glamorous life. It's a hard life, uh, and yes, you can make some money, but but it's not just like people are handing it to you. It's you're you're putting the hours in. So I, I don't think they ever had some dream that we were going to go into medicine. Uh, in point of fact, they just wanted us to find a direction we were passionate about and then just push on that and go as far as we could.
0: Okay, so this sounds pretty good. You you weren't a disappointment yeah. anyway.
1: <laughs> no, no, I you know I think they they've always been really. You know, supportive and and excited about things that we're interested in. I just think as I got deeper into computers, it became more esoteric, and and they just didn't know much about the space. Uh, so to the extent that I was talking about um, databases and relational databases, and this is what's possible, and uh, you know here here's the latest and greatest of uh, you know what's happening in network security or network infrastructure you know it's it's different than if i'm talking to them about uh, you know the latest uh, chemotherapeutic agent that you know and how effective it is or isn't or or what reimbursement strategies look like it's just not not that they weren't interested uh, in what my career was where where it was going it's just I started getting technically deeper in areas that they didn't have direct knowledge of
0: yeah, I'd rather talk to you about oncology than some of that other stuff too. Right.
1: Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so.
0: Okay, so it's the late 1990s, and you're at Stanford. This is, uh, you know, the original .dot com boom. This is this yeah. is exciting stuff. Um, yeah. What um, what what were the things that animated your interest in those years?
1: Man, it was uh, it was just like everybody was excited about everything, uh, and. Uh, Almost anything was possible, and you definitely had a you had a distinct sense of that that famous Silicon Valley term of FOMO, a fear of missing out, um, and that was just permeating every part of uh, what we were doing. Um, you know, uh, computer science was certainly a popular major, but I think I think right now computer science is the most popular major at Stanford. It was definitely not that uh, at the time. Um, you know, I, th- I, I very quickly realized that uh, I'm in Shangri-La of sorts, uh, you know, or, or, or maybe more, more appropriately, I, you know, I was, I was in the Hollywood of the industry I was interested in. So, I, you know, I would I would drive down El Camino Road and just, you know, see these companies that at that time, you will remember, like people still, even though the Internet was becoming bigger, people still really bought most of their software in boxes. Uh, and so I'd have these boxes of software, and I'd see the address on the back, and you know, you'd just drive past that company, or you know, go visit Apple, or go visit uh, Intel, and it was just kind of honestly just um, awe-inspiring. Um, I, I remember uh, walking into this company called BIOS, B Operating System, and it was the former CEO of Apple who'd left to start this company, and I literally just saw the company's logo. Uh, on El Camino and I just stopped and I was like, this is amazing. It's right here, right down the street from Stanford. I just walked in and I happened to walk into the whole engineering team just meeting and they just were awesome. They let me come in and they showed me this computer system they were building and they let me just kind of be with them. And I I was just astonished and just made me all the more excited to go deeper and deeper into computer science. And, you know, it always struck me as an amazing field because uh, you could really, as an individual, think about something and then go create it. You know, um, uh, with a team, without a team, you could just go create stuff. And uh, the the classmates I had from uh, from from Stanford Computer Science that time and era they have all gone off to do these amazing things. And and it's just it's just I think the spirit that was um, that was permeating the place. I have no doubt it's still very much there uh, now. But um, but you know, as as I was getting deeper and deeper into computer science, I I, I came to the realization that I still was interested in entrepreneurship. And uh, kind of my junior year, I got connected with uh, a couple other people as we kind of started thinking about, you know, whether we should try and start something together. And and our thought was really um, that rather than trying to start a product company, because we didn't really know how to do that, uh, we thought we'd start a consulting sort of company and, and maybe we could make a little bit of money over the summer. That would be more than if we were interns at, at, at one of the big uh, software companies and, and we started. We started off kind of building out a senior project that was essentially. I mean, in retrospect, it was really um, in this field of uh, 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 you know of extracting data from databases. So so it was really ETL. So so be, basically being able to take data from one data set and, and, and transform it so that it could fit into another database the right way. And you know we basically spent. Our junior year building out this software package and then and then really we we you know leading into our, the summer of our junior year we found a couple customers who, who were willing to let us kind of uh, you know try our stuff uh, on their uh, on their systems basically we we're building database backed websites for people and uh, and we did that
0: so this is the proverbial two guys in a dorm room or, or maybe an off-campus yeah. house
1: absolutely that's absolutely what it was um, yeah that i mean we could go to the dorm. I'm sure it's still there, <laughs> and we kind of had a bunch of bunch of people just kind of sweating away in that in that room, and and uh, you know it was kind of you know it was kind of a heaven of sorts.
0: Um, you actually did two companies, uh, two tech companies, right? As an entrepreneur,
1: yeah. So the the first company we ended up uh, growing. We did a lot of things wrong, um, to be honest about it. Uh, and, and again, being a venture person now and, and having been doing this for about 10 years, I can I can clearly look back uh, and say that we did almost everything wrong. <laughs> and, and, the, and the thing that saved us was really that, uh, you know, it was like 1998, 1999. So almost everything kind of just worked, um, uh, even if it shouldn't have. Um, but but
0: I what was one thing you did wrong?
1: You know, um, so, I you know described here that I went to this, you know, math and science high school and then went to Stanford. And, you know, one of the things that that you find in these sorts of environments is that everybody around you is generally pretty trustworthy. And so you can you can go to a class and say, hey, you go build this thing and I'll build this thing and then we'll come back together and we'll integrate them and it's going to be awesome. And, and then you go do that and you come back and then largely you do that. You integrate it and it's awesome. And you know, in the real world, that's not at all how it works, right? Like you can't trust everybody and you go out and, and you hire some people and you say, okay, you go do this thing and you go do that thing. And then people come back and like, maybe they didn't do it or they didn't do it well, or, uh, you know, and, and just the realization that, um, that trust works in this much more complicated way than just, yes, you can trust somebody or no, you can't. Uh, and it's formed a real philosophical foundation for me now where, you know, I start off, uh, you have to start off with some trust. You can't not trust anybody. Um, but but then you know, if you have a level of expectation for where things are going to be and then somebody exceeds that, then you know you can rapidly get to a place of high trust. and and then the problem is when when you have an expectation and it, and, and you fall short of that, you know that differential tends to feel like pain. Uh, and and the, the problem that I experienced in that company was very high expectations very low realization of those expectations and that was a huge amount of pain that we went through and
0: that's the human part and and people fail but you know there are other things that people do that tend to get lawyers involved
1: yeah, <laughs> which exactly. I sure you yeah, learned we, about too yeah we definitely we definitely had a couple instances uh, like that but but thankfully you know in the end it was such a weird environment that you know things were growing. Nobody had the time to sue each other. <laughs> I'm sure people were suing each other when there was real money involved. Uh, but but it was really just like, yeah, okay, that happened. Let's just keep building because there's something bigger around the next hill. And and that, you know, thankfully kind of worked out more or less with the first company. Uh, and then one of my good friends from college and I uh, uh, went to, to work on a second company, uh, which, was, which was really formatted in a fundamentally different way. It was really in the network security space uh, and was really much more... Um, connected first to what a customer need was you know the first company we kind of made a mistake also of like we started the company because we wanted to start a company uh, which is usually the worst reason to go (laughs) go do a company
0: often that leads to a solution in search of a problem
1: you got it so that that's actually exactly what we had um and and you know we we with with the second company we we really started by talking to customers and spent a year or so just understanding what it was that that would be helpful. And we kind of started building some stuff in the middle of that. And it became clear that there was an opportunity in uh, an aspect of network security uh, where we could build something that that would almost certainly be valuable. And so uh, once we said we were gonna do that, we had some people who we knew we could trust, who we kind of brought back into the team. We had some money of our own that we could use to finance at least the early pieces of the company. And the whole thing just went in a completely different fashion. It just it ended up being a very robust company. And, and to some degree, we, that, that company was acquired by Symantec. And in the end, if there was any mistake we made, it might have been selling the company because it turns out to be so hard to get to that point where you have something that's really working uh, that why would you sell it? <laughs> you, know, you just kind of keep growing it.
0: So you sell the company. Uh, and how old are you at this point?
1: Oh, it must have been 22 or so. Twenty
0: one, twenty two. Twenty yeah. two. And you sold your second company.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: OK. And now so you're you presumably put some money in your pocket. Yeah. I mean, you're not, you know, yeah, I Zuckerberg felt, rich, but, no, you, know I, you
1: felt, know, I felt like that. Um, <laughs> I felt like, yeah, I could go do anything now. <laughs> you
0: go out and buy a new car.
1: <laughs> yeah. I was driving a Corolla and yeah, I was like, yeah, time to upgrade.
0: <laughs> OK. But then you decide to go to medical school. You move east. Harvard Medical School. What was that about?
1: Well, well, so, so there's a part before that. So, so, you know, I was working, you know, at Samantac basically. And, and, um, you know, we basically had a, uh, a large set of things were, you know, obviously we were selling into a lot of groups in Virginia and East coast. And so I was, I was spending more and more time out East. Um, my dad got sick, um, and he's thankfully totally fine now. Um, but I spent a lot of time in the hospital with him, really less as being his son and just following him on rounds, which is what I'd done before, and more with um, being being with him, uh, with him being a patient, and and you know that that was quite eye opening for me, and I I kind of had a sense that if I wanted to do a third software company, enterprise IT company, I felt like I kind of had a reputation. I I I felt like I could. Um, I felt like I knew who I'd raise money from and who I'd want to do it with and how, it. you know, how, you know, even there were some things in the second company we did that do differently. And, you know, but, um, uh, but kind of being with my dad during that time, I kind of felt like I wanted to do something really different. Um, and I felt like I kind of had felt like, yeah, I mean, I could make more money. I could, you know, really in those companies, my job was to take a dollar and make it into a multiple of that. Um, uh, and it just felt like if I was doing that, honestly, at 40 was actually a specific age I had in my mind at the time where I felt like, it, you know, if, if I'm doing the same thing when I'm 40, um, I think I'm going to be really disappointed. Uh, it feels like I'll just got to been in a rut up until that point, And then I'll wake up and be kind of surprised. Um, and, um, and so I kind of felt like what I really want to do is have some impact on just this messy, silly kind of brutal system that, uh, uh, that we get our healthcare through. And I didn't know what that meant, um, uh, really. And so I I just started, um, spending a lot of time reading and talking to any, anybody who talked to me about it. Uh, I, I looked, just looked up people's websites and just started learning more and more about all these different institutions. And I just kept getting drawn back to labs in Boston. Um, the Broad Institute had been started, and the first human genome had been sequenced. I was spending a lot of time looking at things in that realm. Uh, and um, you maybe came across, you know, I spent a lot of time in the graphics uh, side of the universe uh, when I was at Stanford and in uh, and, and, and high school, and so I always had a passion for that. And I, I got drawn into this lab uh, that's a collaboration between Brigham and Women's Children's Hospital and the MIT uh, Computer Science uh, Lab. and and uh, it's called uh, the Surgical Planning Lab, and and the concept was, you know, to use computer design principles in surgery.
0: Wait, so so were you were you a role enroll, enrolled as a like a biological sciences graduate student before medical school, or did this morph into medical school?
1: No, yeah, kind of. I was kind of like just uh, I was I was at that point honestly I was just a free agent uh, of sorts. Um, you know, and I, I kind of like found that lab, I talked to them and I thought, I, I know I can do something cool for this group. Because uh, I, I know how to program, uh, you know, they want to ingest a whole bunch of different imaging modalities. I didn't know what DICOM was at that time, but I figured that I could figure it out. And, and you know, and then like once, once I got it into the computer that I could do all sorts of stuff that would be interesting and helpful to help plan procedures and and my dad had gone through this procedure, and I thought, well, why did, how did they plan it? Why did they do it that way? And 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 I just thought, well, why aren't they using any of these principles, any of these tools that we've been using forever uh, in other industries like computer design principles uh, and, and software? Why aren't they using that in surgery? And um, I thought that was an interesting thesis, and and it, it 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 served the role of both being interesting, and I think I thought potentially impactful, important. Um, But also gave me access to a lot of things. So that lab was interesting because it's in the basement of the Brigham, and it's kind of a collaboration between the surgery department, the radiology department, and I thought, you know, just be a place where I could go do something meaningful for that group by just writing software, which I knew how to do, Um, and and you know, maybe some of these people would just let me follow them around, you know, and just let me be in the hospital and like see like what does an MRI machine, you know, like look like, and how does that work, and how does you know, how does surgery happen?
0: When you say free agent, I mean you're you're a job. You have a like a job as a technician or like a software person there. Yeah, so
1: initially it was literally I was just just I was honestly just freely volunteering my time and said, look, I know how to build software systems. Can I be helpful here? And they said yes. Please build it. There's a guy Ron Kakinis uh, who's still there, and he's like, yeah, please, please go ahead.
0: If you enjoy listening to these interviews with biotech newsmakers, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. You can subscribe to Timmerman Report for $149 a year per person. Discounts are available for companies and universities with multiple readers. More than 60 pharma companies and universities have gotten group licenses, which come with a discount. For more information, write to me at luke at timmermanreport.com. And today's sponsor of the show is PPD Biotech. As your drug development advances, it's critical to select the right CRO partner for your innovative therapy. With a full set of development services and global reach, PPD Biotech offers teams that are dedicated to biotech and small pharma. PPD Biotech knows that every milestone, every project update, every change in direction is important. Committed to close alignment and cultural fit, PPD Biotech works as an extension of your team every step of the way to find innovative solutions that get your treatments to the clinic faster. To learn more about PPD Biotech or to schedule a meeting with them at the upcoming J.P. Morgan Conference, visit www.ppdbiotech.com longrun. Please do check out that link, ppdbiotech.com longrun. If you go there and schedule a meeting, you will not only check out the services of a leading CRO, but you will also help prove the value of the Long Run podcast to this sponsor and future sponsors who want to keep these conversations with industry leaders going. You end up getting on track through and going to medical school. Yep. How did this uh, morph into you know your interest? You hadn't been interested in in becoming a doctor, and now you're becoming a doctor.
1: Yeah, so so you know, developed all this software. We applied it in a bunch of surgical cases, uh, and there's a particular group at Mass General uh, which does a lot of craniofacial reconstructive work, which ended up using that software pretty extensively, and they just adopted me. They let me, you know, I got hired in as a as a research assistant or something, and 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 they they let me. Uh, I think I was a research fellow, a cement research fellow at some point. And, and they said, yeah, why don't you just build the software for these surgical procedures and then you could join us in the operating room and and you see how it works and you could come with us to clinic and show the patients like how these designs are going to work. And and they just totally let me do that. And I just, just lived at MGH for like morning, evening. I slept there. I was just there all the time. And they just let me do that. Um, and... Uh, and you know, I met the other fellows who were working on other things like tissue engineering stuff and wound healing. And it just gave me this rich exposure to a whole bunch of stuff. It, it actually it actually filled a really deep uh, sense of purpose that I was kind of searching for in my work. And, you know, I wasn't pigeonholed. I could be working on IP one day and coding something the other day, be in the operating room another day, in the clinic another day. And I felt like I could have this kind of multimodal sort of week uh, with a lot of different textures of, of, of interaction. And, I came away from that really just loving patient care, uh, and um, and once I came to that realization, uh, I realized well to do patient care I need to go to medical school. To go to medical school I need to take all these pre med classes, uh, and apply to med take the MCATs and apply to medicals. So and then then I did that.
0: This sounds like torture, Krishna.
1: <laughs> you know it's kind of you know it, it does in some ways, but you know I think if I went through that at Stanford, I would have felt like it was torture. Um, but really, I kind of went through it as a vocation. You know, I I, I took night classes at Harvard Extension School and and, uh, and studied for all these things. And, you know, I don't know, I didn't need to have a job really at the time. And, and I, I found it really fun. I found it honestly just super intellectually engaging. It gave me a phenomenal foundation. It gave me both a, a foundation in the science uh, and a vocabulary that I didn't really have before as well as comfort in how to navigate a hospital system. You know, I had to figure out ways to kind of, well, okay, like, we, you know, we had these patients, they'd, they'd go through these research scanners, and I had to figure out how do you get the data from there into the computer? And it's like, you know, to do that, there's all these weird back-channel things that have to happen in a hospital, and you have to go through certain regulatory procedures. It's like. And it's just like I had to do that. I didn't have really a staff to do that, and I'd just do that. And, and you know, there were all sorts of things. We did animal studies that happened, you know, in the animal lab, and, like, I just never saw all those things. The surgeons let me do all sorts of stuff and just be in places that I, I thought were um, – you know, otherwise inaccessible.
0: All this stuff was hard and inefficient then. This would have been in the mid 2000s. Much <laughs> yep. of it is yep. still hard and inefficient. It's today. the
1: same. <laughs> it's unchanged. It's unchanged. <laughs> uh, you know, between then and now. But but yeah, for me, it's all learning, right? It's 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 all just a sense of like, okay, these are all the things that we're going to need to fix, um, and and the intent is really to help the patient. And honestly, it also helped the physician because a lot of, you know, what was striking to me about those surgeons was, you know, as an entrepreneur, I thought I worked really hard. Uh, and and I, I'm sure I did. I was working really hard, but then I went to meet the surgeons and they would show up at Children's Hospital at 4.30 in the morning, pre-round, you know, present internally and then start cases at 7.00. And it was just you know like surgical cases, be in the operating room, and then go off and finish the day with clinic, and then write their notes, and then and then they were also editors of their paper, their research journals. And I thought, wow, these these people are taking you know a mission to a whole other level. They have no equity in this hospital, right? There's no venture backing. They're just doing it because it's important. And I just I I took that hook, line, and sinker. And, and that, that's what drove me to doing medical school.
0: You, you get your MD, you do a residency. Was, was this at Brigham and Women's? Mm-hmm. So you, you move on into residency. What were you thinking you'd specialize in?
1: So I did an MD MBA, I'll say. And, and it was really in the in the middle of the MBA where I started working at Google, um, interestingly. And then, And then, you know, if you'd asked me before I went to Google what I was going to do, I would have said that I was going to be a surgeon because that's what all my mentors had done. Uh, or at least my most recent mentors, and, and I loved it. Um, and then I went to business school, and, um, and I came to Google during the summer of uh, business school. And that's when I started, that's when I met two other people who were working on what this concept of Google Ventures was, you know, they were working on what ultimately became Google Ventures, and I kind of joined up with them. Google Health was kind of a thing at that time uh, as well, so I got to see that early version of, of Google's efforts there.
0: That was the electronic health records.
1: The personal health record concept uh, back then. And, yeah. and you know, I, I, I kind of quickly came to the realization that I am going to be involved in these sorts of things. There's just too much impact one can have using these sorts of platforms uh, to get to the ultimate goal that I started this path, this journey into medicine on. And I, can't, I had a hard time seeing how I would be a great surgeon, a clinically good surgeon. If I was also splitting my time into all these other things. When I remembered back to the craniofacial folks I'd worked with, you know, the surgeons who were the very best were not necessarily the ones who were publishing the most. They were the ones who were in the operating room all the time. And uh, I realized that if I'm gonna be doing some of this other stuff, then that means I'm not gonna be in the operating room all the time. And I, I I had the the thought of, well, if I was, you know, if I if I had to pick who my family member was gonna to go to for a procedure, it would be the person who was in the operating room all the time. So if to the extent that I'm going to be a clinician, I want to be a clinician in an area where I can be a great clinician uh, in that domain while also being able to have access to the entrepreneurial and other sorts of technology infrastructure and, and you know, other stuff that I thought was interesting to be doing.
0: This sounds a little bit, it reminds me of Atul Gawande's old book, Complications, about, you know, basically, the, the, the surgeons aren't perfect. You got <laughs> They it. need to practice actually, and learn. It's,
1: it was exactly that book that I'd read. I was reading that book, and it was, I think somewhere in that book, or it was somewhere in, in some of Atul's writing uh, that he wrote, that, yeah, it's all about volume. That's what's associated with, well, I think it was the Shoulders Hospital, if I'm recalling, uh, from that book. And, and, um, and that, that argument made a lot of sense to me, and I thought, okay, well, look, like, if I'm going to be a surgeon— then I better be a freaking surgeon and like do because that's that's what those patients deserve. Um, and I came to that conclusion about most procedure-oriented specialties, uh, as well as things like radiology and things things where like that repetition. I think it's true everywhere, but but those 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 arenas in particular.
0: So now you you get the MD MBA. What year was this? Something like two thousand
1: eight, two thousand nine is when I graduated with uh, with both degrees.
0: 2009. Okay, so this is uh, financial crisis is on. Lots of interesting stuff is happening in biotech. We're sort of beginning to really reap some of that long-term investment in basic science, but you know, not a lot of venture capital was being put to work at that time. Google, on the other hand, is going gangbusters as a business and looking for new opportunities. Somebody who approaches you with this idea of, you know, maybe maybe you can take some of the stuff, you know, and put it to work here for Google Ventures.
1: That story started in 2007, 2008. So so in the middle of business school, you do a summer someplace. I was going to do my summer at the MGH uh, intensive care unit because I I thought I need to know how to work in an intensive care unit before going to residency. Um, and I saw all my classmates from business school going off to all these cool things. So I thought, well, maybe I should do those cool things <laughs> or do something cool. This might be my last chance uh, to do something out of the box before uh, getting on the you know, the train of residency and fellowship and wherever that's going to go. So I, I went to Google and um, I met two people, Bill Maris and Rich Miner, uh, who were uh, tasked with trying to figure out what Google Ventures should be. And I was officially working in this group called New Business Development, NBD. And and they were looking across a variety of different new areas of business for Google, one of which was Google Health and other things in energy and all this other stuff they were thinking about, one of which was venture. Uh, should we do a venture fund? If so, how should we do it? And I remember Bill Maris came and he gave this presentation to the NBD group. And, and I thought, you yeah, know, this guy seems like very approachable and you know, I know something about venture and, and I know something about, you know, some of these industries. And, um, so I set up a meeting with him and, and, and we had a great conversation and, and he had me, you know, talk to, talk to Rich, uh, back when I came back to Boston after that, that summer. And, and, uh, you know, the Megan Smith who was running the group at the time, she said, Hey, look, you know, and she went off to be the white house CTO for, for, for a bit, but, you know, anybody who knows her will hear this in her voice where she's just like, Hey, like, you know, you're doing interesting stuff here, like you know. Why don't you just kind of keep doing this part time, like when you go back to school? And um, and I thought, wow, that's that's amazing. Um, I, I consulted with one of my good friends, uh, Sachin and Jane, who's now CEO of Caremore, and he told me, you know what, that's a pretty good deal. You should go do that. And I, I jumped at the opportunity. And and um, and then I worked with Bill and Rich. We spent about a year talking to every venture fund that would. Talk to us, and, and uh, you know, those guys gave me a real opportunity.
0: Okay, Christian, I want to ask you now more about GV. It, you found some people that you could work with. Uh, you had some interesting combination of skills here in computer science and medicine. Uh, but I, I think I've asked you this before. There was, um, you, you need a big break. You need a, somewhere to start in, in venture. And I think for, was, was Adimab your first uh, real investment? Yeah. The, the one that... That got you kind of wired into Boston venture capital. Yeah, probably
1: that that was that was our that was definitely our first healthcare investment. And yeah, I I, I don't know if that was my break. Uh, you know, I I you know I did all the diligence behind the company and wrote up all this stuff and and uh, <laughs> like diligence never to have been achieved again. Like I just had so much time, I just poured it all into this company and. and um, uh, was very convinced that it was going to be a great company for us to invest in. And and, and Bill ended up uh, taking the board seat on it and ended up being a great, uh, you know, great company, introduced us to amazing people, uh, Terry McGuire and, and a variety of folks, the SV Life Sciences folks and Eric and Tillman. And these are all just people we continue to love and, and, and try to work with any chance we get.
0: Now, for those not familiar, Adimab has got a yeast-based platform for antibody drug discovery. Tillman Gerngross, Eric Anderson, a couple of others, venture capital firms that you mentioned. Um, they're they're going to d- discover new antibody drugs, classic pharmaceuticals.
1: Yeah, and, and you know part of what I liked about the concept of us investing in Adimab was that it was an antibody development platform, not a therapeutics drug company because right? as you said it was 2008 2009 at that point and uh, nobody was investing in venture count ca- in in, uh, in in biotech you know most of the funds were pulling back from biotech I'm sure you remember several of the great funds just closed uh, around that yeah. time uh, and uh, and here we were with a fresh new fund you know a bunch of tech guys you know kind of looking to do you know biotech stuff you know here and there and and um, you know I think People were probably confused by what we were really going to do, and um, I think the tech world was confused by what we were going to do, for that matter. But but you know, um, but Adamab struck me as a company that probably wasn't going to just implode, right? Uh, one, you have uh, Tillman, who's a second time successful founder, uh, having done Glycofy before. You have some phenomenal venture people around the table. Uh, and it was not a binary risk. You know, this was a platform, so they were going to they were going to enable a bunch of other people to take binary risk, maybe. Um, but but their platform would continue to grow. And and uh, and as you know, since then they've gone off and started off separate companies that themselves have taken on more risky specific therapeutics projects.
0: Uh, but Adimab itself. Yeah, Adimab was built for independence from the get-go. Tillman didn't really – right. it had that LLC structure. It was going to hive right. off programs for its partners. Yeah. The partners could take the development risk. Adimab would keep discovering off of that platform. You got it. We'll, we'll discover more and more antibodies against more and more targets, keep raking in actual revenue, um, and and find a way to pay back our investors with dividends uh, over time. It, it was kind of a, a novel structure at the time. A few people have replicated it yeah. since. Uh, but it was yep. uh, it was suited to that time, uh, which was not quite as bullish or, or frothy, maybe, as, as yeah. the current day. Yeah, quite right. Um, That's a, it's
1: a, it's a true statement.
0: Okay, okay. So um, this is really your first investment. And, and, I mean, from pretty early on, this, this looked pretty good. Um, so, I mean, this probably didn't hurt with your bosses back in Mountain View. <laughs> you know, you're doing okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, like, fast forward— You, you've got, I looked on your your webpage, you've got something like 30 companies active in your portfolio, therapeutics, diagnostics, um, some genomics, electronic health records in there too. I mean, lots of stuff going on. I don't know how you keep up with it all. How do you?
1: I I think one of the phenomenal things about uh, being in venture um, is that you can really follow themes. Uh, and, and theses across, uh, across a whole wave. And, and you know, it's different than being in a company. right? In a company, uh, you, you're on the hook for every detail. Uh, and, uh, and it's actually one of the frustrating things about being in venture is that you're not on the hook for every detail, and you sometimes miss, as, as somebody who's been in an operational role and is now in a venture role, I miss that uh, piece. I miss the camaraderie of being in a team that's together every single day uh, working on a specific problem. Uh, that's the great thing about being in a company. But the great thing about being in venture is that you can have kind of these broad reaching theses, hypotheses that, that if they pan out, should change the industry in some fundamental way.
0: Okay, so what are these, what are these theses that guide your thinking?
1: It ranges across all of these areas that you're uh, talking about. And, and, um, and I certainly, I'm not proposing to you that I have the answers to any of these, uh, But but what I think we've been able to do is find important areas uh, and then ideally find phenomenal people who are equally passionate, if not more passionate, about trying to find a solution in those areas. And then you generally know that that if you have great people working on something important and and they succeed, that's going to be a valuable company. So so you know we could talk about any of those domains. Uh, we could talk about uh, some of the interesting things that happen at intersections of those domains. Uh, but but that, that that's kind of how I keep track of it. Is it's not company by company to some degree. Occasionally it is. Uh, there's certainly companies that I spend a lot of time with and 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 um, and, and try to be helpful in, in very um, granular ways. Uh, and then there's other companies that are you know we're looking at and and because we're looking at the field in a broad fashion, we can spend the time developing connectivity that we can then bring to that company and hopefully accelerate in, in kind of a, a thesis driven fashion. So, so you know, in therapeutics, I mean, the obvious ones, uh, certainly we see the benefit of working in oncology and orphan diseases because you have disease models that can be more representative of what human biology actually looks like. And we have, you know, a, a, an impact on genetic insight from uh, from these diseases. So, so, so that's led us down, you know, one set of paths. It certainly helped us get into the concept of foundation medicine, which is one of our uh, uh, investments uh, before, you know, from, from, from earlier in GV's life.
0: Genomic information you know, we, we, for cancer. That's genomic, one of those te- data tech plays that meets biology.
1: Exactly. And, and that, that investment led us to the thought process around, well, you know, what happens to those patients who are, who were sequencing and we, we, we send them a report saying you have all these different mutations. You know, what happened to that patient? Did they get therapy? Did it work? Did it not work? Did they have a reaction? What happened? Uh, and that, that's honest, that, that's what prompted our interest in the concept that ultimately became uh, Flatiron. Uh, and, and so that, 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 all, that all kind of came from a single thesis area.
0: You, you got lots of cool science in here, though, just in therapeutics where I'm looking at. You got a microbiome play with Avello. You've got an antibiotics com- discovery company with Sparrow. Uh, computer-aided drug discovery with Relay. Uh, Elector is, you know, another prolific discovery shop. Some of the same people from Adimab, actually, uh, for uh, this time for Alzheimer's and neurodegeneration. Uh, There's some patterns here.
1: Yeah, yeah, you got, you're you're picking up on all of it, right? So, so, you know, Elector, uh, you know, we've certainly, we'd certainly been looking at the interaction between immune, the immune system and, 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 and neural neurology. We, We knew neurology would be an interesting area to be investing in over time. Uh, you know, and then looking for orphan diseases and genetically driven diseases or, ge- you know, genetically qualified diseases at, at the very least, which, which I think Elector came to uh, independently. It's not like we went and founded that, that we they, they came to us uh, through, the, through the Tillman uh, universe. And, and, and you can see in that both we're doing our homework. We're spending a lot of time on the science. Uh, our team is all MDs, PhDs, MD-PhDs. Uh, who are following these areas of science because that's what we're passionate about. Uh, but we're also following people, right? So Tillman's somebody we trust. So, you know, we can have a debate and talk about something interesting. And, and if he's uh, excited about something, we're probably going to be excited about something. And and you can this see that. This sounds a through.
0: little bit like my last guest on the show, Julie Sunderland from Biomatics, yeah. who I know you know. Yeah, um, of course. Sort of like step one in due diligence. Like the science has just got to check out. <laughs> it's got to be exciting and it's got to check out. But then all the due diligence is about people and getting the right people around the table to yeah to make that thing happen. Um, okay, now <laughs> while you're doing all this stuff, um, you still see patients twice a week at Brigham and Ribbon, Women's. Is that right? Yeah, I see
1: patients. Uh, I pulled back to once a week. Um, I just had clinic this morning, um, and um, you know that's that's been an important part of uh, you know important part of my identity, and and uh, you know it's you know, for some people, I think they have a clinical uh, life that, that somehow informs their venture life. And it, there's probably some part of this that, that does that. But, you know, for me, it's always been kind of an independent thing. Um, you know, I like patient care. Uh, I'm a primary care doc uh, there. And, and uh, you know, it's not like our, our latest immuno-oncology things kind of have some direct read onto my primary care. Occasionally, I have a lot of cancer patients and, and, and you know, we can at least talk about things and and direct people in, in, in maybe more sophisticated ways sometimes, but, um, but, but really it's not about that at all for me. It's really that I like being a doctor. I like trying to help people on usually at really hard times of their life.
0: You're not conducting market research uh, on rounds or,
1: no, no. I mean, I wish I could tell you,
0: complaining about Epic medical records around the water cooler with your colleagues. No,
1: I mean, I'll, I'll do that surely, (laughs) but, but, uh, but you know, that's not, that's, you know, it's not like I'm, Doing that in order to inform the, uh, uh, the venture side, it's, it's honestly purely selfish. I, I, I really like patient care, I like being uh, in the hospital environment, um, and, um, and I do it, even though it makes no economic sense to do it, like my time could probably be more leveraged by deploying this large fund that we have into, into more, uh, you know, more companies, but, um, but I think I would burn out without it in some fashion.
0: You mentioned the size of the fund. Um, so you, you see patients once a week, and it's a nice thing to do. It keeps you grounded. I, I get that. Uh, h- how big is your f- actual fund?
1: I don't think we officially say how big it is. I think it's more like a, you know, few billion dollars under management uh, sort of thing. But um, but you know, it's it's in this in the in the several hundred million dollar per year sort of range.
0: Okay. How is it? How is it structured? Is it like an evergreen fund, or do you get kind of an annual allocation and? It's more that more, work?
1: more or less every year. There's there's an amount of you know amount that, that's essentially grown every year or something not every year but but every so often grows as we see more opportunities. Um, and then it's it's pretty flexible how how it's been structured where where we invest in essentially whatever uh, the partnership finds uh, to be impactful, likely to be profitable, impact, you know and, and and with great people and and we largely make those decisions um, that can sometimes take us far afield uh, from things that. The core of Google is doing, uh, and sometimes it's things that are very well aligned and, and naturally connected to, to things that are Google are doing. But but as you're hearing, you know, from the earlier earlier part of the conversation, you know, we're, I'm not spending a lot of time thinking, you know, where is Google going and, and how are they going to do something this way? Or, you know, we just purely look at where we think the market is, where we think the impact can uh, occur, and where the science is, uh, and obviously where great folks are, and. And we try to orient ourselves around that. And then, and then just over time, some of those things happen to be really interesting and impactful to Google.
0: How and, many investing partners do you have there, uh, and particularly on the life sciences side?
1: It's a good question. Um, we have officially on the life sciences t- side, uh, there's Blake Byers uh, and myself, um, who are the two general partners. Uh, and then we have some phenomenal uh, uh, venture partners. So that's uh, Anthony Folpakis. Uh, out here in Boston, there's uh, David Reshef, uh Also out here, Ben Robbins. Uh, also in Boston, Scott Davis, who's based out in New Hampshire, uh, and then um, and then Vinita Agarwala, who's based out uh, at Stanford. And then we have some other folks who, that you know will will continue growing into the team. But um, but that's that's kind of been our core group uh, to date. And um, yeah, we'll we'll you know as you can as you see those people. Those are all MDS. MD-PhDs, uh, you know, who are all, I think, taking a similar approach as, as we're kind of looking for ways to, to be impactful in all these all, all
0: these. So areas. you got two GPs. Uh, it, presumably, there's, there's other GPs in the tech investments yeah, yeah, and other yeah. things that GV does. Correct. Um, so who do you actually report to?
1: I report to David Crane, who is the person who runs Google Ventures. Uh, and uh, he's been part of Google Ventures really since essentially the beginning as well. And he's been part of Google since really part of, you know, way back in the beginning
0: and what and what are your what are your success metrics when, when you report to him at you know the end of the year, which actually might be coming up soon?
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, right.
0: Well, how, how do you get evaluated?
1: It's pretty straightforward, and, and one of the great things about being a venture fund is that in the end, it's all about you know how many dollars did you know Alphabet invest in us, and, and how many dollars do we report that, that, that do we return back to them?
0: Okay, so as corporate VCs go, they come in different flavors, uh, strategic or financial. You, you're making a financial case. That, that's what you are. I mean, Google's not in the pharmaceuticals business. <laughs> They're not going to acquire these companies. It's, it's, so. it's a
1: structure like that, and, and, and to me, at least, um, uh, you know what we really try to orient around is you know we're trying to bring in people to Google Ventures uh, who are at least of the caliber of what you'd find in other venture funds. Um, in some ways, really, in some ways, a lot of the people at GV are quite different um, uh, because of. Because of the backgrounds that we, that we try to to, to search for, and uh, we need to compensate people in a way that's that's really appropriate for what they're doing. Otherwise, other people will pick them up. So, so yeah. So I think I think that's that's the way we've always looked at it. Is we want to be playing uh, in a in an arena that is uh, you know the top tier of venture, uh, and so so we need to be able to to you know to level set against what uh, you know what other folks do because uh, otherwise people go off and do other stuff. Um, and, and so far, we've been able to train everybody.
0: I do want to come back to this question of of how you manage your time. I mean, now you're at this established point where I imagine deals come to you. You're, you're syndicated with a lot of really um, top firms. Uh, you got thirty listed, thirty portfolio companies on your your page. Uh, how, how many boards do you actually sit on at any given one time?
1: I try not to get over ten. Um, you know, honestly, it's it's kind of gone down a little bit recently as um, as we've had some exits. Uh, of companies that I was on the board of, so um, it's freed up some, some time uh, to do more stuff. So, um, so it's usually it's usually somewhere under ten. Uh, uh, I think if I get down to two or three, then i will probably kind of which is where it was in the very beginning. You know, I'd be on two or three boards, and and that felt like a lot um, at the time. But I think I think we've kind of figured out you know how to, how to do this in a different way. I mean, part of part of the strategy of Google Ventures is that we have a lot of operational support uh, in 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 the firm, and so. Uh, you know, frankly, I think, I think there's a there's number of companies that will find uh, the impact of those various teams, you know, whether it's our design team, engineering, recruiting, marketing, partnerships. You know, those teams can often have um, far more impact than any one of our general partners or, or, or venture partners in the, in the space because they, they have much deeper networks and, and, and they learn from the rest of our portfolio, portfolio in a way that no one... Uh, partner can learn. Uh, And so that's part of how we've been able to to manage the volume on on it. But um, but yeah, I I try and set up. This is part
0: of your value proposition to entrepreneurs too, right? In that, you you know, if you you take money from GV, um, yeah, you get Krishna or Blake on your board, maybe. That's nice. But (laughs) you also get to tap into some of these additional people and resources that the mothership has.
1: That's just it. I mean, you know, to the extent that a company is working in uh, you know, machine learning, or data sciences, or data infrastructure, or wants to see the latest and greatest of how to even organize an engineering team, or, you know, I, you, we just have such tremendous resources uh, that we can pull on uh, at any given moment. Uh, not just inside of GV, but inside of the rest of our ecosystem. Uh, you know, so so on, those, on those sorts of things, it's not just about us. I mean, the nature and culture of our team is very collaborative. Uh, we like to be helpful, we like to engage with, with each other's portfolios and, 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 and really pull people from inside of Alphabet and Google into areas where there's like, something really cool happening in a company and, and make sure that, uh, that people see that, okay, like your, your insights here could, could really move this in the right way and lots of examples of, of how that's uh, been helpful and that's absolutely part of the brand and structure uh, of how GV has grown from, from the very beginning to, to, to today
0: last big question I want to ask you, Krishna, is about your view of genomics. Um, You know, we've been hearing a lot about it for many years. I wrote a book about, you know, a visionary of of this area from the 1980s. Um, And it's not as simple as some people might like it to believe. Like, the the ACG&T is not exactly, you know, a digital code that dictates X, Y, and Z uh, in in our health. Um, (laughs) um, So... Uh, computers can do a lot of cool things, but they can't give us all the answers that we want, not just yet. Uh, and, and partly as a result, we, we aren't willing to pay a whole lot for some of the information that's coming from this first wave. Foundation Medicine built a pretty good business. Uh, there's some others, you know, Flatiron that you mentioned, that are, that are trying to bring together biological and medical data in a coherent way to improve healthcare. care. Um, but there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of potholes along the way, a lot of black holes, mm-hmm. companies that didn't make it. Yep. Do you? How do you think about this opportunity? What worries you about it? A- and where do you think the real winning companies are going to come from?
1: In today's world, I think I think it would probably be. Uh, It'd probably be the wrong answer to to look at genetics and you know, genomics, you know, data sets that are coming together and say there's there's just no value in them, uh, because it's so complicated. It's definitely complicated. It's just you know being naive not to not to think that and, and, and see it. Uh, and and we've we've consistently as a as a uh, as a field been been. Um, uh, you know, out you know, out complexityed by, by biology. So 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 I think I think we enter this uh, eyes wide open on the complexity we we face on this. Um, on the other hand, uh, there's clearly a lot of insights that b- can be gained uh, by by looking at aggregated data sets and pulling out patterns and and looking at exceptional responders, for instance, or looking uh, uh, you know for um, you know for for the sorts of patterns that exist when you start looking at at larger and larger scale. Uh, data sets in this space. Uh, with that said, uh, you know I think I think one of the errors in in the field historically has been that there's somehow uh, value in targets, right that uh, that pharma doesn't have enough targets and if you could just identify the target, then somebody would be willing to pay something for that. And I think we all recognize um, certainly one of the things we've learned is we've tried to take a humble approach and in, in understanding how biotech works. Uh, that yeah, the targets not actually worth worth all that much because, you know, who knows what it does downstream, you know, and, and there's so much complexity that you could inadvertently step into if you just try drugging one thing and 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 even trying to drug that one thing turns out to be a non-trivial task. Uh, and so the story is, the narratives are great and, and you know, as with so many things, maybe one day we, we do enter a world where we just have a much deeper understanding of the fullness of the complexity on it, but we're not anywhere close to it today. Uh, but there are other fields, uh, you know, other, other approaches in computer science that are quite relevant, and, and and one of them is just the hacker, right, you know, uh, which is, look, you just try a whole bunch of stuff, and eventually you kind of get the system to do the thing that you're trying to get it to do, and you don't exactly know why, but it does it. You know, the, the whole drug discovery field has an element of that, and there's a hunger and a, and a, and a passion for, you know, just getting the system to move in the right direction uh, that... That you see in, in in you know in the drug hunter sort of mentality, so so there is there is some similarity there, but but it, it it has an appreciation for the underlying complexity and lack of understanding we have for most of it. With that said, I I, I look at the field and I think you know the values in the drugs because the drugs are the are, are, are the place where you don't get to hide behind, you know, what is or isn't happening. You know, you're going to run a large-scale clinical trial. You're going to put up a lot of money to do it. And you're going to hopefully have some data out the other end that gives you some insights as to whether you're right or wrong about your hypothesis.
0: Therapeutics are still what we are willing to pay for as a society. Uh, but I I did notice that you told, um, I think it was uh, Chrissy Farr from CNBC not too long ago, that you're really intrigued about prevention. And maybe this is you wearing your doctor hat. <laughs> um, but are, are there ways... <laughs> to like actually do a better job at prevention and gosh, maybe even rewarding the people who come up with these kind of innovations. So, so it's interesting,
1: right? So yeah, when I talk to Chrissy, usually when I'm talking to Chrissy, it's in the context of usually payer provider, you know, oriented innovation. Um, and usually when you and I are talking, you know, we're usually talking about biopharma and, and, and therapeutics and things in that realm. And, and it's one of the interesting things about the industry where it's like, these are two separate communities uh there're two separate uh, investor communities, two separate entrepreneurial communities, uh, even sometimes two separate geographies that that some of this stuff happens in. But but you know the reality is they all exist on a continuum in the same ecosystem. And and oftentimes these times these two entities kind of polarize against one another, but they heavily influence each other. And and you know when I think about something like prevention, you know, part of it's around the science, of course. We need to know and understand what sorts of things we can be looking for to you know, to enable prevention. Uh, but I, I think just as big, maybe even, well, just as big, you know, obviously you have to have the science, maybe that's the sine qua non, but you also have to have a incentive structure that, uh, that allows for people to act on, uh, on prevention to actually like make it make sense to, to screen for things. And, um, and to me, that that speaks to where value-based care goes. You know, to the extent that we're in a fee-for-service system, screening is interesting because sometimes you pick things up and then you can charge for the downstream intervention. You know, in a in a in a value-based care framework, uh, we want to screen because we want to find uh, something sooner so that somebody doesn't end up in a expensive uh, uh, site of care. Uh, if I can screen and find the colon cancer early, then somebody doesn't end up. You know, with a severe complication down the line, the emergency room requiring a lot of expensive imaging and chemotherapy and all the other stuff that'll uh, be sequelae of that. And and so I think I think the incentives are are uh, are so important. And and it's it's just hard to have the full aperture on it because when you're at the beginning of a drug discovery program, you know you're so focused on is this thing going to work? That's the th- <laughs> it's like the thing you got to spend all of your time and effort and money on. And and it's very hard to then take a big step back and think about, well, if it works, then how how, how do we let community communities across the socioeconomic spectra, how do we let them have access to this? Um, and it it really is a design criteria that probably should be brought much earlier into the development process. Sometimes
0: ten years go by in biopharma before people really think about that seriously. <laughs> totally,
1: totally. But you can understand why because it's like it's you're going to have to raise a billion dollars over time to get the thing you know into into patients and and you know through the whole approval process. And by that time, like who knows? Who knows what the reimbursement environment's going to look like? Maybe we're back to paying for everything. Maybe it's going to be you know uh, you know uh, you know winter is here. You know who knows? Like uh, and so you know. Because drug development takes such a long time, you kind of have to focus on the science before you can start baking in some of those other cost uh, uh, sort of considerations. Well, these
0: incentives and business models really, really are crucial. And um, you know, it probably does would do me some good to talk to you about some of this side of the business that I don't know as much about. I know Scott Gottlieb, but the FDA thinks about this side and and um, you know has been working yeah. on uh, trying to create pathways for apps uh, that monitor people in in meaningful ways um talking with people over at cms who you know n- rightly need to look at the data for, with a a hard um skeptical eye to make sure they're getting their money's worth for us taxpayers but like we we, we um Maybe maybe I should send this podcast to Chrissy and <laughs> she can send me some of her writing we will you know, we'll all like do a big mind meld. I would
1: love that. I would love that. I bet that I bet that we'd come up with some really cool insights because because I'm convinced that some of the most exciting and tremendous opportunities actually exist in the intersection between these things. You know, going back to 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 screening, for instance, you know, it kind of gets back to uh you know, how do you how do you drop the cost uh dramatically decrease the cost of caring for a patient with a particular illness. You know, and in the end, as far as my logic takes me, it's by being able to accurately and precisely diagnose that somebody has this specific condition and then to be able to provide some intervention that cures it. Uh, And the only way we can do that is by actually investing in the biopharma side of the universe to understand those diseases and cure them. Uh, and at the same time, we have to be able to take those insights and put them into the lowest cost of care where you can deliver them to the right parts of the population. And and at least the observation I'd have is when we really can complete that cycle, it can actually just be pushed entirely into the consumer space. Because if you understand the disease and can truly cure it, you can start to control for all these toxicities that we worry about so much on the therapeutic side. It's not that it happens all the time uh, uh, that we can do that, but 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 that to me is is the criteria for really understanding and and, and having an impact on diseases is, is well okay like you know can I just buy that at, at at you know on on online or or at a at a local pharmacy uh, and you know we're we're obviously not there with cancer we're not anywhere close to that with almost any disease um, we don't understand how you know how m- most of the drugs that we prescribe really work uh, so so you know I think it's a tall order um, but but to me. It it does kind of illustrate why why these things all are actually existing in the same universe and uh, and need to have much closer interaction. So so if you do set up something with uh, with you and Chrissy, I'd be happy to moderate that. Uh, <laughs> well,
0: I I, I think uh, you know it it does start with the biology, and once we learn, once we figure out some of that hard biology, some of these other things can fall into place with the right kind of will and strategy. I mean, th- these are solvable problems. I
1: couldn't agree more degree
0: more. With that, Krishna, thank you very much for joining me today on the Long Run Podcast.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And it's always, uh, I always learn something uh, when I get to talk to you. Thanks, Luke.
0: Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. Thanks to PPD Biotech for sponsoring. And thanks to you for listening. See you next episode.